with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Would you pray with me as we go to the Holy Scriptures this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to come together, that we're able to focus our attention right now on your holy scriptures. And God, I pray that we see that in these scriptures, Christ is a compass for our life. Christ gives us direction and meaning that, that we were created to know him. And we were created to give him glory. And may your scriptures make us aware today that there are other voices trying to mislead us, other directions that we should not go if we are going to fulfill this call to glorify Christ in all things. I pray that as we see how Paul was speaking to this church, that we will see how these scriptures call us to focus our attention on Christ and to live for him. It is only in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I believe that what we're seeing here in this text is that Christ is the compass of our life, that he can guide us, that he can direct us to everything we were created to be, and that our joy is ultimately found on that path of following Jesus. 444 days. 444 days. That's a long time. One year two months, two weeks, two days, 444 days. Imagine that time period. Think of all that you will do in the next 444 days of your life. The people you will interact with, the goals you will accomplish, the experiences you will encounter. Now picture those days that lie ahead of you, not accomplishing goals, not pursuing experiences, but picture if in the next 444 days you were a hostage. Hostage. That is exactly what happened to a group of Americans in Iran from November of 1979 to January of 1981. In the midst of the so-called Iranian Revolution, Citizens of Iran stormed the American embassy in Tehran and took 52 American citizens hostage, and they remained hostages for 444 days. Finally, in 1981, they were released, and our relationship with the nation of Iran was radically altered as a rigid theocracy gained a stranglehold on the nation, and that stranglehold still exists to this day. I cannot imagine how profoundly frightening it must have been to be a hostage for 444 days, or to be a family member or friend back in the States praying, hoping, longing for the release of your loved one. Few things in life, I'm sure, are as frightening as being a hostage. And that is the concept that comes up in this text today. The concept of being taken captive. Captivity. And it is a warning that if we are not careful, 
we will become captives. But I think there is a way to avoid being captive, and it is this application in our text today. And the application is this. Follow the compass of Christ to true freedom. I believe that is the first application we see in our text. Follow the compass of Christ to true freedom. Look with me again in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul warns consistently in this text that something is trying to make you a hostage, something is trying to make you a captive. And it's not to put you in a physical cell or cage, it's not a literal gun that the enemies used to take you captive, but it is empty philosophy, empty deceit that can take our minds and our hearts captive away from Christ. It is an enemy that wants to see us abandoned the will of God. And Jesus stands urging us to see that what he wants is our good. What Christ wants is our freedom. John 8.36 says it like this. It's Jesus himself who says this. In John 8.36, Jesus says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus says that his good news, his gospel, is the opposite of captivity. It is only in Christ. It is only with Jesus that we get to experience freedom like we were meant to experience. Jesus wants to give us direction in life that leads to this freedom. Satan is the thief that seeks to kill, steal, and destroy in our lives. And he wants to give us a direction of captivity. And we see a recognition of that in this text. Look with me again in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. And then Paul says this, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Quite often in the scriptures, when Paul says something like that, the elemental spirits of the world, he's alluding to the spiritual realities behind our reality, that there is a resistance toward God that is found in the kingdom of Satan and the prince and power of the air, and he is behind the human tradition that leads us astray. If Christ is our compass, we will follow his direction toward freedom. If Satan's tactics win and he lures us into being his hostage, then tragically, we will forfeit the freedom that Jesus seeks to give us. So let's look at this. What exactly is trying to take our minds and our hearts as captives, as hostages? Look with me in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. The first thing we see is this philosophy and empty deceit, this description of something that Paul is trying to show can take us captive. Now, it's important to see what Paul is not saying. 
Paul's use of this word philosophy would have been a lot larger than we use it. He's not dealing with philosophy we think of as a discipline. Now, some of you may have took philosophy in college or somewhere else, and you didn't like the class, so you're like, there it is in the Bible, philosophy's bad. But what Paul is dealing with here, we need to be careful, Paul is not dealing with academic philosophy. Academic philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, existence. That's not Paul's concern. His concern is empty, deceitful philosophy. He's qualifying what he means by it. Once again, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. And he goes on, an empty deceit according to human tradition. He gives qualifications for what he's talking about here. His concern is a deceptive belief system. His concern is a philosophy that is empty of something. Namely, a philosophy that is empty of Jesus Christ. So, this is what Paul is dealing with that he feels is so dangerous that it can take us captive. Deceitful beliefs and philosophies that are constantly striving to gain our attention. When you think of World War I or World War II, maybe you recall the violent, aggressive use of U-boats, German submarines, thousands of lives tragically and horrifically perished from the brutal use of torpedoes and the targeting of civilian ships and military vessels in World War II. And the Nazis were ruthless in their pursuit of destruction. Now, when you think of World War II and you recall in history what happened, the struggle against the Reich, the struggle against the Germans, against the Nazis, you may think, well, in that sense, the European theater, World War II was a conflict that happened over there, 3,000 miles away in Europe. It didn't happen here in the United States. But the true history reveals the Nazi submarines were very, very close to the continental United States. Not even a military vessel, the cargo ship, the SS Alcoa Guide, was shot in 1942, when just 300 miles off the coast of North Carolina, a Nazi submarine surfaced near them and torpedoed their ship and sunk it. 27 made it off the ship, but the lifeboats didn't seem like much help since they were 300 miles away from land. It seemed that even though they made it in the lifeboats, there was still a good chance they were going to perish. But one man, a Russian immigrant named Vladimir Semenov, seemed unusually calm and collected amidst the chaos. For he showed those in his lifeboat what he thought to grab as they were abandoning ship. And he showed those who were with him that he grabbed from his room a compass compass. A compass that helped them to guide their lifeboats into shipping lanes to achieve rescue. And at the age of 95 in 2005, he donated his compass 
to the National Museum of American History as they recall how close the Nazis actually were to attacking the continental United States. Such a small, simple device that literally saved the lives of the SS Alcoa Guide. So what do compasses today do? It's a simple invention. They follow the magnetic pull of the earth and it points north. But since that needle points north, you can use it to guide yourself in any direction. So I want you to picture something this morning. Picture that you approach a table in life. And on it are many compasses. And and you can choose which compass you want to be your philosophical guide for life. Some compasses point to money. Some to power some to prestige, and so on. But one compass is God's compass that points to Jesus. If you pick that up, if that is your guide, then your aim is to follow the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. But the enemy has placed all these other compasses there, hoping you will pick up a means to follow a false path. And the enemy's goal is that you will fall it all the way to captivity. So here is a deceptive compass that many will pick up, the compass of human tradition. Look with me again in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. How does human tradition take us captive? Well, there are many, many ways that human tradition can creep up to assume a dominant role in our lives. I was speaking one time with an individual who claimed to follow Christ, and he said in his church they literally rank the holiness of instruments. So an organ is more holy than a piano, and a piano is more holy than a guitar. And they literally think that this is true. This is what is true of organs. Now, does the Bible ever tell you which instruments are more holy? No, it does not. So where did this idea come from? Human tradition. Human tradition is a tactic of the enemy to lure us away from that which should be the supreme guide of our lives, the Word of God that points to Christ. Human tradition will cause one to drift into baptizing infants instead of converts that can make a confession. Human tradition will place uh, someone else between you and Jesus as an authority figure when the Bible says Jesus is your high priest. Human tradition will elevate the teachings of mere men to the same authority as God's word found in the Bible. And human tradition will take us captive to turn from the Bible and base our direction, our compass, on the opinions of men rather than the word of God. Jesus Christ himself dealt with this in his own ministry. In Mark 7, beginning in verse 9, in Mark 7, verse 9, we read of this account of the ministry of Christ. Jesus confronted human tradition in his ministry. In Mark 7, verse 9, it says this, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. 
But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. You see, the religious leaders of their day had developed this system where you could give your time and and your funds to the religious cause that they were doing, and then you didn't have to take care of your parents because it was given for the religious cause. And Jesus says, that's not what the Word of God says. That's what you say, and you're breaking the commandments of God to follow your tradition. And this does not just happen, this notion of human tradition, in explicitly religious context. Human tradition is any time we set aside the Word of God to form our basis and direction in life on something else. So naturalism, the belief that God is not required for the universe that we see, and naturalistically rooted ideas that life, the earth, the universe, affirmatively no question, they need no God. That position is a human presupposition and is now a massive tradition in the society with which we live. Sometimes it is explicitly religious, such as the notion of needing anyone between you and Jesus, human tradition. Sometimes human tradition is cultish, adding books to the Bible from mere uninspired humans. That is a human tradition. Sometimes, though, we who are connected to the Protestant tradition, Baptist in particular, we kind of think we avoid this because we say, well, the Bible alone is our authority. And to some extent, we can most certainly express gratitude that the Bible as our guide absolutely gives us a compass that points to Jesus Christ. But sometimes the ability of human tradition to creep in can be subtle. So we claim the Bible alone is our God, but we let human tradition have a place it does not deserve. Think about it like this. What if I said today, we're stopping Sunday morning worship here at this church, and from now on, We're going to worship on Sundays, but not until 3 p.m. 3 p.m. will be our new worship time. What do you think? How do you feel? Do you think, wait, wait, we we can't do that. Now, don't worry. Don't panic. We're still meeting at the same time. But does the Bible say we have to meet at 1030 a.m.? No, of course not. So it's a human tradition, right? Now, here's the deal. Human tradition is not bad. Please hear me. Human tradition is not bad until we place it above the Bible. That's when it becomes bad. We all have traditions. We all have routine. But if it, if it is subordinate to the Word of God, then it's in its place. So ask yourself this. If the church decided to repaint if they decided to redesign the sanctuary, if they decided to change the times we meet or change some procedures, inside would you think, but that's not how we always did it? If so, is human tradition just as authoritative in your life as the Bible? 
Human tradition can be removing Jesus from the basic thoughts on existence, a creation without a creator. It can be adding a a person between you and Jesus, something the Bible says we should never do. Human tradition can be cultish, where mere men have the same authority as the Bible, or books are added to the Bible, but can also subtly be where we foolishly believe the way we do things is the best way to always and forever do things. The only thing that should be set in stone for a true church is Jesus Christ and the rock of his word. And we should never let human tradition take us away from that. And why is Paul so concerned with human tradition? Because any time human tradition gets to be the authority in your life, it means Jesus does not. And why should Jesus get to be the authority in your life? Look with me in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus should get to be the authority in your life because Jesus is God. He is God the Son. That's why everything that the deity is is fully present in Jesus Christ. The Bible says it like this in John 1. In John 1, 1, very clearly it says this testimony of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the designer. He is the maker. He is God. Can I make a confession? I am radically ignorant of cars. Like, I should know way more about cars to have made it this far in my life. I am ridiculously ignorant of everything that goes on under the hood of an automobile. I can drive one. I can do this. I'm not going to brag too much, but I can check my oil. I can do that. I can see how the oil is doing. And that's about where my knowledge ends. If my life depended on it, and I had like a YouTube video, maybe I could change a tire. But, but that's it. When my car breaks down, I have only one hope. I'm going to someone who knows what he's talking about. I'm going to a mechanic. And, and knowing this, I still do something that I find puzzling for myself. If my car breaks down... You know, and if you ever see me on the highway and my car breaks down, you may see me doing this. I will walk in front of the car, I will raise the hood up, and I will sit there and look, knowing that I have no idea what's going on. I don't know why I even go through this. After I've checked the oil, it's over with. What could I possibly do? There's nothing, but I still sit and I look like I actually can contribute in some way, and I can't. When my car breaks down, I'm going to a mechanic that knows what he's talking about. Friends, listen to me. God is the maker and mechanic of the whole existence of this universe. He made it. He knows how it works. He designed it. He knows what you were designed for. And we live in a culture that says we should get to be the gods of our lives. 
we should get to be the complete gods and rulers and monarchs of everything we want to do. And God is saying, but you have a maker. You're not the creator. You are the created. And the creator loves you. And the creator has purposes for you. And if you get out of sync with them, you're not going to be chasing joy. You're going to be running straight into captivity. The God-man, Jesus, that is where our compass should point. That is where we find what we were meant to be. And that is where we find ourselves on a path, not of captivity, but of freedom. So, So how do we do that? How do we hold this compass of Christ in our lives? Jesus said it like this in John 17. In John 17, 15 through 17, Christ was praying and he said, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is Christ is our compass when we are committed to the word of Christ. Christ is our compass when human tradition is subordinate to God's word and we are aware of the voices that seek to take us toward captivity and we are attentive to the voice that wants to take us to freedom. The Bible is how Jesus becomes our compass. So ask yourself this, because we all do this. In what way have I allowed human tradition to take a place in my life that only Jesus and his word should have? And if that is our contemplation, then I think this will also be our application. Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12, I think brings this application. Accept Jesus by faith. And then, be scripturally baptized. Look with me again at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Even though circumcision is common in our culture, it does not have the same religious connotation it did for Israel in this time period. At eight days old, the males in their society would be circumcised. Something is removed, the body is forever altered as a symbol that they were set apart for God. And and this may be odd perhaps to us due to the cultural differences of of time and distance that we have from this society. But the concept that something needs removed, we need altered. That truth, though expressed cross-culturally here, is a reality that is universal. You see, the Bible, even in the Old Testament, treats circumcision as involving ultimately a spiritual symbol of what needs to happen to our hearts Everything we are, our motivations, our desires, our direction, it needs sin removed and discarded. We need permanently altered from the state we are in to follow God. Moses said it like this in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses was inspired by God to write this. 
To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Even in the Old Testament, circumcision ultimately points to the symbol that our hearts need change to follow God. And this altering, this change, only comes through faith in Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Now, if I said to you, by slipping on this ring, the rest of my life was dedicated to Leslie, what would I be talking about? I'd be talking about my wedding, my marriage, right? I'm talking about my commitment to Leslie. Now, am I only talking about this ring? If I lost this ring, is my marriage over? No, this ring is a symbol, but it points to the whole commitment of my marriage, the ceremony that took place with it. But it's the commitment that ultimately counts. You see, the Bible, and we talk this way too, the Bible closely links baptism, the ceremony, with the faith declaration and relationship and commitment to Christ that begins at conversion. So when I said when I slipped on this ring, it doesn't mean that the ring has any magical power or anything, but it's a shorthand way of me to talk about the relationship of my marriage. And quite often, baptism is a shorthand way to talk about what it points to, the faith commitment and entering into a relationship with Jesus. So does baptism save us? No. Please hear me. Salvation is found when you can acknowledge your sin before God and turn to Christ, accepting Him as your Lord and Savior and beginning a relationship with Him that will never end. That is salvation. Baptism cannot save you. But it doesn't mean baptism isn't important. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 3.21. In 1 Peter 3.21, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, and he qualifies this, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. Baptism, the removal of dirt, doesn't save us, nor does church attendance, nor does forgiving others, nor does reading your Bible. But if Christ is our compass and we've come to know him, we will obey his commands, not to earn his salvation, but to celebrate that we are saved. Jesus says this in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, when are you a disciple? The moment you convert. When you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, putting your hope in his resurrection, confessing your sin, that instant you become a child of God. And now that you are a disciple, what should you do? Jesus says this, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Baptism 
is a one-time moment. This is not a recommitment. Baptism is a one-time thing. You don't do it three or four times, no more than I need to marry Leslie every Tuesday. It is a one-time moment and testimony. It's the first step of obedience. Jesus says once you've become a disciple, you should follow him in scriptural baptism. Where in scriptural baptism means you've accepted him and now you are baptized. Why? It is a celebration and testimony that as Christ went into the grave and rose again, so we symbolically show through going in the water and coming back up that our hope is in his resurrection. It is a public testimony that we are saved. It is not something you do to get saved. And that is not a human tradition. It is a beautiful invitation that if you've come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, you are invited to testify through baptism that is, Christ is not ashamed of you. So you are not ashamed of Jesus. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So, as you reflect on this scripture today, take joy in knowing your life's direction doesn't depend on empty philosophy on empty deceit, on human direction. Rather, you can stand your life on the foundation of he who has a permanent victory over death, on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, We thank you for this direction we get to have in life. You did not abandon us to this fallen world. But though it is broken, you have sent Christ. You have sent your son to redeem us, to save us. And Jesus, we thank you for giving us direction in life. For not allowing us to be held captive to the enemy for eternity. But to break our bondage that we may walk in the freedom of being your sons and your daughters, that that we can, Heavenly Father, be your children. Christ is our high priest. And God, I thank you that as we have the opportunity to, to have direction in life, that you call us to tell this world they can have direction too. They can have this peace as well not because of the traditions we create, but because of the truth that Christ brings in this world. So God, if if we do believe this, Heavenly Father, if we believe you sent your son Jesus, and he being our high priest, we have access to return to you and we're your children. If we believe that, God, would you give us the strength and power to let Fort Thomas, Northern Kentucky, and the whole world know that it's theirs too, that Christ has died and risen again, that they may come and live for you. May we all be found with Christ as our compass. May we be proclaiming to this world that is attacked by the enemy that wants them to be captive, that there is a voice calling for their freedom, and it is Jesus. And it is only in his name that we pray.
let us stand. We will close singing the praises of our Lord. And if you need to make a decision today, if you need to come at this time as we sing these praises, you come.